Hey there, welcome to Beyond the Bikini podcast, where you can enhance your body and your mind. My name is Nicole Ferrier, exercise science grad, certified personal trainer, bikini competitor, and coach. On this podcast, you will learn more about my experience in the fitness industry, competing in bikini competitions, mental health, and how to gain more success in your own life in your fitness journey. So sit back, relax, or power through this cardio session and enjoy. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Beyond the Bikini Radio. Today, we have a really exciting guest. He used to be my professor back at BW. I think you taught, what was it? Was it like biomechanics? I think I taught you in biomechanics and motor learning, if I'm recalling that correctly. Like, did okay. I have it maybe twice? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you did. I blocked yeah. out. There were early classes, I think. They were 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this is Nick Truby. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and like what got you into fitness in the first place? Absolutely. Yeah. It, uh, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been involved in pretty much every sport that you can get into. Um, team sports, individual sports. I had an older brother who was three years older, who I think I just try to keep up with. He was huge into sport and went professional when it was his time. Um, but um, kind of leading into high school, I think I got much more serious about it because I wasn't exactly the biggest of stature and still really am not. But <laughs> in order to compete, I was like, what, what can I do to get an edge? And that's when I really started to fall in love with the resistance training component. I was probably 14 or 15, you know, five, 10, a buck 20, maybe soaking wet. And, uh, probably graduated high school at like maybe 140 ish, but, um, you know, could bench and squat almost, you know, almost double, if not more, um, my body weight, which I thought was pretty cool at the time. Um, and then played golf in college, uh, which was kind of a trip. Um, but always continued, loving everything around fitness and exercise and working out. That was just kind of my jam and, and still is for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say a year after college, when I graduated in grad school, I still wanted to compete at something, you know, you still have that kind of competitive edge. And I was thinking about like, well, what can a person that kind of looks like me with my skills still be decently competitive at? And it wasn't like anything strength wise by any means, but, um, so that's when I kind of picked up running and mm -hmm. you kind of, you kind of caught me in the end of my running decade when I was teaching. Um, but I ran hard, pretty hard for a decade there. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit more about like what you specialized in, in undergrad. And would you say that like your passion for fitness at a young age inspired you to seek more education? Oh, 100%. I mean, I started out undergrad in mechanical engineering, which is why I was able to teach biomechanics <laughs> when you were there. Um, not that it was my favorite class of all time, but it was, you know, it, it fit the bill at the time. But um, yeah, there's always been something like very deeply grounded in me personally with moving my body. Mm -hmm. And like, whether that's learning or whether that's for enjoyment or whether that's for kind of getting into flow, even 
Um, I use movement for all of those things. And I always have, I just have kind of realized that within the past, maybe four or five years, how like moving your body through space and kind of meeting your level of readiness for that day, whatever that is, can really do some amazing things for you. Just getting, getting you thinking uh, more deeply or more focused or just feeling better or whatever that might look like. Right. I think Mm -hmm. more I, I think back to my childhood and even through high school and college um, it makes more sense now when I look back of why I was attracted to it um, but I think the earlier you start I think you know if anybody listening right now has kids it's I think it's super easy to fall into the trap of getting your your young one into something really serious early on and I don't know the long-term trajectory of that. I don't, I don't think we're there yet societal wise to see, you know, how some of the young kids now are pushed and see where they'll be in at 25 or 30 years old to see if they still love exercise or not. Um, but I was very fortunate in that my parents just made it fun until I wanted to get serious about it. Yeah. And I think that was important for me because I can lean on that now as like, this is supposed to be fun. And the more you start to delve into that process, then you can start getting more serious about something. But I think fun has to be the backbone for sure. Yeah. I think a lot of like fitness is also discovery. Cause like, I know for myself, when I, I would make like exercise videos, I was 14 or 15 and they were like a mess. I had no idea what I was doing, but like, that's the fun thing about fitness is like, you get to learn more about like what works for your body and how to move it. And like, you know, how different systems work. So like strength and endurance. And I just remember like falling in love with the whole process. Like I'll never forget when my friends took me into the strength training room and they explained how like, you know, this machine can help you with this muscle or this machine can help you with that muscle. I'm like, oh my gosh, I literally get to be like an artist and choose how I want to look. You know, I found that like super empowering because like I never had exposure from my parents. It was more so just a bunch of girls that wanted to go to the gym to honestly like meet boys. Mm -hmm. Well, sure. I mean, that's a good place to do it, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. especially even like 10, what was it? Yeah. About 10 years ago. Yeah. There's like no girls in there. Yeah. Which is surprising. And hopefully, you know, with, with your outreach and this show and your social media stuff, I feel like you do a great job of just like showing what's possible. Um, and I think, you you know, you and I are on the same page of the self-experimentation part of that, of like, well, what if I do this and I put, you know, whatever, three months or six months into it, what could happen? And that to me is really exciting because, you know, I kind of love the unknown part of that. It, it allows you to have somewhat of, you know, some things working in the background of keeping things exciting and fresh and you just don't know how cool can that be? Yeah. So let's reverse a little bit in your story. You got heavily into marathon running and even I would assume doing multiple races mm -hmm. and then you're teaching at the same time. And I know at our school that there were a lot of other professors that were also endurance-based runners. So I'm sure that you guys also hyped each other up. Mm -hmm. So what was it like stepping away from that when it was you know, potentially a huge part of your identity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, uh, I think at the, you know, when I was in like my running prime, if you want to call it that, I never like won any races. I was pretty competitive age group wise, but um, 
it was fun still because I could be fast and compete. And that was enough for me at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was maybe like five or six years into making running, running the kind of the main portion of my training. I would still do the back end work of like some strength things and some ability and, and type of things like that. But kind of when you were, you know, you and I were in the same place, I tried to, you know, just thinking specificity. I was like, I want to see how this is a good time for me to really see if I can get this much better in running. So I went like all in on running and what ended up happening was, um, I got so weak (laughs) strength wise. I mean, you saw that picture when you messaged me about like, Hey, let's jump on a podcast. Um, yeah. Like that's when I looked at that picture, I I had forgotten. I literally went through my clothes, like my my closet of like, what can I get rid of? And I found that old running singlet. And I was like, this thing used to be like big on me. I'm going to throw it on. And I could barely get it on. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, gosh, I got to look back at these pictures. (laughs) And I looked at that picture and I didn't hardly even recognize myself looking at it. And I was like, that was a freaking skeleton of myself. Um, And I think that was kind of the turning point after I had kind of burnt my nervous system, just torched it to, to those nothing left, but ashes, um, just from what, just you know, kids. yeah, just from like, <laughs> just from acting like you can still run like you're 20, but you have, you know, kids and a career and everything else and you're not sleeping and all that kind of stuff and stress. But, mm-hmm. um, I realized how weak I had gotten and that like to my core was something that I was back in that high school kid again of like I'm gonna fight so hard to get strong because I'm tired of being like this small frail person yeah. you know? so that was like a wake-up call for me and that was probably in 2017 or 18 um so that was like wow I got to get back to where I used to be when I was in college and I could you know get under a 225 in a bar and press it 10 or 12 times like it was nothing mm-hmm. um so that was a big pivotal point for me to to say, I'm cool to step away. I don't, you know, I don't think it's really my identity. I enjoyed running and I liked being a runner, but I wasn't like so tied to it that it was like some kind of psychological break to get. Yeah. 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 I know for a lot of like my clients who can even struggle with over-exercising, they say like exercise my therapy, but in a way like they're abusing it. they can have a really hard time decreasing their cardio. So they're trying to lift, but then they're also doing, you know, hours of cardio in a week. And then they are like wondering why their body's not changing. Could you go maybe more into detail on why your body, you saw maybe muscle loss and a more thinner build versus like a more muscular build? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a great question. And I think there's a lot of I don't know if it's uncertainty or just not a great description of what that style of training looks like out there for people to, to dive into and understand. But when you can currently train with something concurrent, meaning like I'm going to go 50% endurance training and 50% strength training, what ends up happening is essentially you, you never see any kind of real improvement either way right so Mm -hmm. yes strength training can improve your running but if you're training outside of more of an aerobic style of lifting it's not really going to get you much improvement running and on the flip side if you run so much that you're 
improving aerobically and training the muscle in that specific way, when you try and do that same type of training in the, in the weight room, there's a lot of disconnect there, especially in the nervous mm-hmm. system. So like, I, I always go back to looking at just the basic physiology of a skeletal muscle, right? And if you train to improve strength, it makes sense to hypertrophy the muscle, get larger, right? Add more of the contractile proteins, the ones that do the work in the muscle to create the force to get stronger. So you see muscles get bigger, right? On the flip side, when you look at running in endurance training and aerobic training, the reason why our physiology will dump some of that skeletal muscle size and we see decreases in the circumference and cross-sectional area of the muscle is it always works towards efficiency. Like your physiology, no matter what, always works towards being more efficient. And when you look at running, it's all about how quickly can I take that fat, that carbohydrate molecule and oxygen, how quickly can I take it from the blood and get it into the mitochondria within the skeletal muscle, right? Not to get too nerdy here, but in (laughs) the way in which you do that and make it faster is you make the muscle smaller, right? Mm -hmm. To where the distance between where the blood is entering the muscle into the place where it needs to go, that distance becomes shorter because the muscle is smaller, right? In in Mm -hmm. circumference. So that's really the main adaptation that you make when you aerobically train is you'll see decreases in muscle size. Sure, you might look more cut depending on kind of how you're training and the intensities at which you're training and how much you're training and, and nutrition and those kinds of things. But the messaging is different when you're looking at a muscle getting larger and a muscle becoming more aerobically fit, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of like, most of my clients are women and I think a lot of them, they want shape, you know, they want their legs to have like, you know, some muscle tone, they, they want a butt, you know, and mm-hmm. then if they pick up long distance running and yeah. you lose your butt and you <laughs> lose your legs and they, and in some ways they feel like they're making progress because they might go down in a size of jeans, mm-hmm. but you have to look at where, like, what are your progress markers? And I'm not a huge fan of like going off of the scale or just going off of like the clothes that you're wearing, like look in the mirror. Do you like how you look? Mm -hmm. And I mean, even kind of that moment you had for yourself, like you said, like you looked in the mirror and you're like, I, I don't like where I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. And I know I've been like that before too, when I was like big into running, big into cardio. And I was like, I'm working my, my ass off and nothing is changing. So I'm doing something wrong. So what you need to do is put most of your time in the thing you want most. So if you want muscle gain, you should primarily be lifting. Mm-hmm. If you have endurance-based goals, totally fine. You should primarily be be doing like endurance-based training. Don't try to mix them both and don't try to be this super athlete because you're probably not going to be the super athlete. You're probably not the 1%. Like you're probably the rule in this situation. Yeah. And I think we all know that person that can do that. And that's like the golden yeah. nugget that's dangling out in front of us. Like, oh, well, he's doing it. Why can't I look like him and still, or her and mm-hmm. do both? And I'm like, well, that person is just a freak. And then you move on. Like you shake his hand or her hand, like, congratulations. I know you're working your face off to do this, 
but you know, this is not going to happen for everybody or anybody. Yeah. 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 I think, I think everybody's seen like this, like jacked marathon runner too. And they're like, Oh, that could be me. And it's like, yeah. Right. (laughs) But then it's like, they're a marathon runner, but they're running like a three hour and 15 minute marathon, which is a snail's pace. If you're competing, like you're not going to compete anything male or female at three hours and 15 minutes. So it's like, sure. They can run a seven 30 mile or whatever, but that's, you know, that's running backwards for most actual runners. Yeah, probably way faster than me still. <laughs> I haven't ran in four or five years, so I wouldn't, I don't even want to know what that would look like for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen the fun little TikToks where people be like, come run a marathon, we haven't trained at all. And you just watch these people like suffering. And I'm like, that kind of seems entertaining to do maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> you could maybe do it on like a hike trail type thing maybe but on a street somewhere that just sounds like misery yeah Yeah. i would probably do a disney marathon yeah there you go you can do the what do they call it the uh oh shoot they call it like the where you do i think you come in friday you do like a 10k half marathon saturday and a marathon sunday oh no they call it the goofy it's called the goofy so that does sound pretty goofy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing that stuck out to me is you talked about, you know, doing this marathon training, being a dad, you know, working full time. I would assume it's kind of a high stress position too, because you have a lot to manage. And then you're like, well, my CNS is getting tanked. For mm-hmm. our listeners who don't understand what the CNS is, why is it important to take care of it? And two, are women more prone to stress and maybe, you know, taxing their system a bit more? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'd like to look just, like I said, kind of break it down to the basics. So like your, your central nervous system is simply stated just uh, anatomically your brain and spinal cord. And, you know, the eyes are an extension of the brain. So sometimes they get lumped into that. But in when you're kind of combining it all together and looking at it from a person standpoint, like obviously the muscle and everything else happens from a signal within the central nervous system. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and you can break it down even further of like, you have the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight, or when you're essentially exercising or moving your body with intention, you're pulling uh, from that portion of the nervous system, which also happens to be the same nervous system that gets taxed when you're stressed or when you're very focused or when you're working on a project at work where it may be fun and everything like that, but you're still taxing the the side that is revved up to do work, right? And then you have the parasympathetic where you're resting, you're relaxing on a Sunday afternoon, you're sleeping, um, whatever that looks like, right? So there has to be some balance within those two sections of your nervous system. And if you rely too heavily on that sympathetic side where you're always pushing, you're always stressed, you're always worried about whatever is going on at work or with your kids or your relationships or whatever, that only has so much bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And when you tack on exercise on top of that exercise, like you mentioned is it can be seen as a therapy. Yes. Right but it's still an additional tax on that portion of the nervous system. So it all compiles. Um, As far as your question about women compared to men, um, I don't have enough. uh, Like research on it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know enough research on it or have 
even an idea to give any kind of uh, answer to that. Um, but I think in general, though, most people kind of living the nine to five, having a family and then trying to throw exercise on top of that isn't always the best recipe most of the time. And that's one of the reasons why they may not see results because they're so mm -hmm. stressed to begin with. It's like you can't throw stress on top of, on top of stress and expect your body to respond to that in a positive way. Yeah. I know women in particular, like something that's great is your menstrual cycle. So if you end up losing your menstrual cycle, this is a great sign that it could potentially be too much stress. Um, I know that women are also prescribed anxiety medication more likely. So that's kind of where I was getting to is like, it mm -hmm. seems like our bodies just seem to be pretty sensitive because of a man's reproductive system, of course, can shut down under stress. But like for a woman, you know, I've, I've even seen women at like a healthy body fat percentage, but then, you know, they have a, a big exam or they're going through, um, you know, some sort of personal stress and their body just shuts everything down. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. And I can see where, you know, especially women with, you know, in a career lifestyle, you know, they're in that environment and then they still have to nurture and take care of children when they come home, right? Mm -hmm. They still have the duties of whatever their family construct looks like. So, you know, you can see where just that 30,000 foot view is really a recipe for just a mountain of stress. So I'm not surprised by that, that stat that you threw out there about women being prescribed more medication compared to men. Yeah. And so, if our CNS system <clears throat> is out of control and we're super stressed out, is your body going to be able to build muscle? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I, I think you can. And I think here is where I think your, uh, your pitch, because I know how important and how much you emphasize resistance training um, compared to the aerobic side. <laughs> because when you think about an already stressed environment and you put on workloads of continuous hour plus training session, right? At a pretty high relative intensity, um, what ends up happening on the flip side is your recovery takes so much longer before you're actually prepared for another bout of exercise that would matter, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, right? Compared to on the flip side with resistance training, we can target very specifically and do much smaller amounts of workload per given time. And you can build in that cycles of high stress and low stress, high stress mm -hmm. and low stress, which I think is important for our nervous system to see, like what does high stress look like voluntarily in, in those resting intervals? What does me really intentionally trying to calm my body down look like before the next set, right? Mm -hmm. I think that contrast the nervous system loves to see contrast, right? It loves to see fast versus slow. It loves to see uh, um, like energetically high versus low. It loves to see cold versus hot, right? So the more you can provide elements of that contrast, the more you regain control of your nervous system compared to only letting it see one speed all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Running is one speed all the time. Yeah. Unless you're following a very specific program of doing intervals and repeat runs and, you know, the, the runner out there would know what I'm talking about. 
most of the training time is going to be one speed, pound it into the ground, don't care and don't look back. Whereas on the lifting side, it's much more intentional with that levels of hard work, rest, hard work, rest, fast rep, slow rep, right? You can really detail that much better than the running side. Yeah. And there's just, you know, even exercise selection is so much more than just going forward. You know, you can move sideways, you can do unilateral work, you could do um, compound lifts, you can do single joint, like there's just tons that you can do. And I think that's nice because let's say you are some like at a, you're having a day where you're more stressed out. You can gauge your intensity super easy with lifting. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Like, with running, like if you're getting ready for a race too, it's what are you going to do? Frisk walk? Like, you know, it's kind of hard to bring things down because even with running, like you have to be in flight, which is hard on the body. So with lifting, like you can very easily just even do a mobility day and that can pay off a lot um, and transfer nicely into like making more gains or, you know, even take an additional rest day. So that's, what's like really nice about lifting is like, you need the rest in order to improve And like, I know for me, I definitely have days, I'm sure you do too, where I'm like, oh, I don't want to be here. I'm tired or I don't want to work out. You just probably go a little bit easier on yourself. Yeah. I think that the choice is much easier too. And I'm thinking back when you were talking about that, I was getting back into my, my runner head and the person training for a race, you could, no matter how hard you tried, you could never get yourself to run slow. Right. Yeah. It's like, even if it's on the calendar, you're being coached by someone. It's like, slow down to this pace. You get going and you're like, if I run this slow, I'm going to lose my fitness and I can't do it. <laughs> when in reality, that's exactly backwards. Like you should have ran slower and then slowed down some more. Um, but when you're doing, like you mentioned with the resistance training side, it's like, you can do a warm up. You can ease into it. Oh, I started to feel good today. Let's hit this spot. Oh, I'm feeling pretty bad. Let's dial it back down. And you think much more about, obviously how you need to be able to recover from what you just did to see an attribute improve. And with resistance training, I think that's much more in the forefront and you can visually see it and you can actually see it in practice. Mm -hmm. How long would you say it took for you to get back into lifting and see some more positive physique changes? Because I think a lot of people are coming from this place of a lot of endurance-based training, you know, we hear the term cardio bunny for a lot of women. How long would you say it took for you? Cause many people are impatient and I think they need to hear like a realistic timeline. Keep in mind too, like you're, you're a male, so you're going to be able to build muscle easier. (laughs) Sure. Um, uh, I would, I would probably say I started to notice, I mean, obviously strength starts to return quicker just from the connections you can make within your nervous system about which muscle needs to be used when to see strength improve. But I would say like size and seeing actual muscle grow in certain areas. I mean, it was probably over two years before I started to like not look so much like a skeleton. And in some ways I still do because I'm still maybe 155 pounds on a good day, but um, it's, you know, one and a half to two years of four plus times a week was probably a good number. (laughs) Yeah. I I hope people hear the whole years thing because I think a lot of them want it in like two to four months. Like it takes a long time to build muscle. 
yeah, I would say two years. And I feel like I had a pretty good platform to build from. Um, I've never really had a lot of body fat. So it's like you start to see improvements faster in my body type compared to others. Um, and it probably still took that long. And um, there's some cool research out now that I've dove into a little bit. This is kind of, is going to be interesting, I think, for anybody out there listening. Because we hear that term muscle memory a lot. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I have the muscle memory to do this. I can get back on a bike and ride it. But in reality, muscle memory in that sense isn't really the way in which we actually think it is. So like what most people think muscle memory is, is like, oh, I can just do it without having to think about it. Well, that's mm-hmm. inter- that's like information stored within your brain and spinal cord, right? When you think of actual muscle memory, there is some data out there saying that within the muscle, it can store data based on the size of muscle previously in your lifetime, right? Mm. So for me, I was at a point in college and I was 22 years old where I was 160 plus pounds at four or 5% body fat and like pretty big for my frame, right? So I also had that within my genetic code to build from after I was a skeleton and coming back from it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think in all reality, if a person is expecting things to happen before a year, um, they're going to be disappointed. Yeah. And I think if you go in with the expectation of I'm going to work, I'm going to approach this style of training to fall in love with uh, the process. And then on the flip side, I'm going to end up loving it. And then all of a sudden I see the results, right? Like I think yeah. that is a good expectation. Yeah, that's kind of cool. That whole study kind of makes me think of people like post post op, you know, where they get like detrained or, you know, maybe they break a leg. Like I do feel like those people tend to like their other leg doesn't continue to get massively bigger than the other one, right? Like the other leg, like once they get out of their cast, like it just seems to catch up like super fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's I think that's a much better like understanding and definition of muscle memory because there is some coding within the muscle about size and where it likes to be and where it wants to be and what it has been in the past Mm -hmm. yeah did your nutrition shift at all from like when you were getting ready for your races versus like hypertrophy training i would say yeah probably yeah um usually if you look at uh dive into the details for like even protein intake between aerobic like competitive aerobic runners even though they don't because most are malnourished like in reality but if you're looking at like what should i eat protein wise as a a cardiovascular type specific person or a strength strength athlete most of those recommendations are about the same Mm -hmm. so i always try to keep that a little bit higher um no matter what um but i think once you start running a lot you just eat whatever's in front of your face because you're just hungry all the time, right? Like it doesn't even okay. matter. Um, now I'm much more detailed on eating windows and protein intake. Um, I'll supplement with creatine, just a, a maintenance dose of, of five grams, which, which I think almost everybody should take no matter what, just looking at the cognitive improvements that have been shown with creatine in general. Um, but really beyond that, it's it's keep it simple, keep protein high, drink really good water and, you know, get some rest and good things yeah. have happened. I want you to go back and touch base on creatine because a lot of women think they're going to take it and it's going to make them fat. So yeah. can you explain, <laughs> can you explain why 
intracellular water retention is not a bad thing. Did you do you recommend for a lot of your people you work with? Oh, I think creatine is great, but I get some people that will take it, and you know who you are. Where it's like one one to two weeks even, and like the scale goes up like one and a half to two pounds, mm-hmm. and then they feel like they're gaining too much weight. When in reality, it, there's nothing wrong with having some water retention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it uh, that can be a trip I think for some people that aren't aren't ready for that. But um, if that happens, that person is likely chronically dehydrated to begin with. So. Mm-hmm. Then those extra couple pounds on, you should be thankful that now you have some fluid for your nervous system to talk to itself. It can exchange things much more efficiently within the cell, within the muscle, within the nervous system, within the nerve, you know, fluid has to be there. So mm-hmm. if you're absorbing and getting that much weight, that usually is a good sign that you are likely dehydrated without, without knowing it. Um, on the flip side, if obviously if you're taking it, you need to be using your training appropriately to use the reserves for why you're taking it mm-hmm. um, because most people don't understand that when you're eating an animal product you are eating creatine right it's mm-hmm. part of our body the energy system that that can move you the quickest and generate the most force uses creatine to create that energy within your body so you you have to have it and you have it right as part of your natural construct Now, when you're taking it, I think what people get afraid of is they all had that friend in high school that was taking like 50 grams of creatine a day and the dude exploded because like, what else are you going to do? Right. Yeah. Um, Compared to being a little bit more knowledgeable about it. And sure, you can do like a super physiological loading phase of 20 grams a day for five or six days then back down to five grams. But in my experience, I don't really think you need it. I think if you're just consistent with it and you're eating most of your protein sources from food, you're mm-hmm. going to have a surplus for your training. And yeah. I think it's going to allow you to train more intensely when the time is right. And for me, that's very important. Yeah. So creatine timing, does it really matter? Great question. Have, have you seen anything about that? I just, when I've gone back in my notes, it was like pre-workout with a carbohydrate, I believe. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, a there's, that's such a good question. Personally, I, I yeah. I think it's splitting hairs, but I want to hear what you it's, think. It's a hundred percent splitting hairs. Cause I've heard some experts say like, oh, you should be taking it, um, you know, midday to end of day to where it has time to process and be restored. If you're going to move or exercise in the morning. Um, me personally, I find it best when I add it to my coffee. Oh my gosh. No. (laughs) (laughs) So I drink it with my coffee at like, I usually, I get up at five or five 30. Um, I, I, you drink element packets at all. Have you heard of those? Okay. I drank an element packet and I will say I'm not usually like this, but I literally gained like four pounds of water retention. So I need to play around with my fluids because my body was not ready for that (laughs) because I like felt it too. I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like I just like was on an airplane because I get a lot of like water retention whenever I fly and that's exactly how I felt. And so I like stepped on the scale. I'm like, oh, (laughs) that makes sense. (laughs) I mean, it's such a salt load. It's like a thousand milligrams of salt. Um, but you know, for me, like 
if you haven't eaten or drinking for eight or nine hours and I'm going to exercise in two hours, I need to like, you know, mm-hmm. supercharge my physiological capacity there. So I usually wake up at five, five or five 30, drink a liter of water with, um, that element packet in there, which is electrolytes and sodium. Um, then I'll eat breakfast at like six 45 in the morning. It's probably the biggest meal of the day for me. Um, calorie wise and just overall food wise. And then I usually work out at like eight 30 or nine and I drink my coffee at seven. This is getting, I'm sounding obnoxious here, but this is like a, a Vogue, a Vogue, um, interview morning routine. <laughs> so like people are gonna be like, gosh, this guy's super anal about what he's doing. Um, but it works for me because it's like, you know, um, you're hitting your, your body with a stimulant after the natural, natural production of your cortisol is, is dropping from waking you up. So it gives you a more even keel level of energy. Um, and then it has enough time for me to digest everything. But so my creatine is like one and a half to two hours before I exercise. And that works great for me. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you're listening, I think there's room for experimentation. If you're not sure, try something for two weeks, take note, make a change, try for two weeks, take note, see if you notice a difference. Yeah. I think a lot of people too, like if you're just trying your best and you know that you're, you're like a super forgetful, if you take it at the end of the day, and that's the only time you can remember, like when you're about to brush your teeth or whatever, that's fine. You know, yeah. just taking it is going to be better than not taking it. And I think sometimes like we can be on social media and, and try to figure out like what's optimal, right? But what's going to be sustainable for your lifestyle? Because there's plenty mm-hmm. of things that I know are optimal, but it's not optimal for my personal life. Exactly. And most of the research too, the people are going to hear like, you know, you got to have protein within the window after a workout. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Like, well, how much protein are you actually getting in a day? Let's start there. Mm-hmm. Cause it's not going to matter if you're in, you know, a deficiency of protein, whether what your timing is, because if you don't have enough, or if you're not getting enough calories, you're not going to be in an anabolic building stage to begin with. So the timing of whatever you're trying to time doesn't matter to begin with. Right. Mm -hmm. So go back to the basics. How many calories are you eating? Are you trying to gain weight? You're trying to lose weight, right? Trying to gain muscle. Okay. Better be in a surplus or at least even ISO. Right. Then what's my protein? Like, look at my protein. Am I getting enough to begin with? Okay. If I'm doing those things well, then you can start playing around with like how super anal do I want to get with timing? Yeah. You really need to like master the basics first and be consistent with that. And then you can start to worry about like the more finer details, but I think people just get ahead of themselves and then they get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in all reality, it just goes back. I mean, the the real main factor is, uh, you know, how consistent are you with your actual workouts? Mm -hmm. What are you meeting your level of readiness with that workout? Right. So are you, if you're feeling great, do you hit it hard? If you're not, if you're feeling terrible, do you ease your way in and make a judgment call on how hard you want to hit it that day? But in day in and day out, are you doing that every single day? And are you resting enough to come back the next day to work out again? Right. That's the bare bones. You're going to see improvement, whether you eat amazingly timing wise, or you just eat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Tell us um a little bit more about your transition out of, um, you know, being a professor, academia, and then 
into coaching because I feel, well, I felt like as a student, I was telling you this before we started recording, I felt like undercover. I was like, I feel like I'm the only one that knows about this whole online coaching thing. Like this is (laughs) what I want to do. And little did I know you were probably teaching and thinking this, like after your class thinking, I want to do online coaching. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt. I mean, I was always like the most hands-on strength coach all through grad school because that was part of my role was like either training or strength coaching and teaching through grad school. And then when I got into full-time professorships, obviously those things drop off and you're more in the academia role. So that's always been like my true, like that's where my my jam is, right? It was like working with people and being in that environment and educating in that route compared to you know, in front of a class. Not that I didn't love that because I just like teaching in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think even like in when I was 2017, maybe like my wife was working with an online fitness coach. Like, so the idea was there mm-hmm. and I would go uh, to the Cleveland clinic once a year and I would talk to a big group of physicians about like talking about how do you counsel a person about exercise or whatever, right? Like they don't, they didn't know anything about anything exercise wise. So I'd come in and give a spiel or whatever. And I'm like, people don't have no clue. They need way more of this. So that's when like, I started generating ideas of, I want to start my own business. Mm -hmm. I just need the timing to be right to get out of this current role and to jump into that. Um, So fortunate enough for me, it was sooner rather than later, but um, yeah, the, the professor side was a little bit too stuffy for me, I think, and doing more of the online coaching and training and building relationships that way. Um, as you see it, I don't think there's any better, any better place than that. Yeah. I mean, I, I would assume it being kind of hard as a professor, because I almost feel like there's this, I don't, I don't want to phrase it in a bad way, but almost like they, you're higher than us. You're, you're better than us. Like, and it's hard to connect. I feel like with a lot of professors, cause I feel like a lot of them carry this like stigma. That's what I'm looking for. This yeah. like stigma, this ego in a way around. And so it's hard to connect. And I almost felt like even in your classes, <clears throat> I'll never forget you like teaching a Turkish get up and <laughs> you were like super into it. But I felt like you wanted to connect more and like I could tell you loved learning, but I also felt, you know, you're also a professor. And so it felt like this disconnect, whereas now at like with your, your clients, you're probably just able to be you, you know, versus like feeling like you have to have this wall up. I know. Right. That's, that's one thing I felt a lot too, Um, as much as I tried to connect with students and get to know them much better. I think there was just like that social construct of, you know, this is the person that's going to teach you, right? So there's always some kind of barrier there that's hard to get by. And I think it could get take advantage of either way. You know, I think too close and be like, buddy, buddy, and you can be too snooty and be like, oh, I'm better than this person, right? Yep. So I tried to hover like, I just try to be a person in there. And yeah. And I think it was probably weird for some people to have a professor like showing exercise movements and be like super jazzed up and walking around and having fun. Like that probably wasn't normal for most people to have that experience. That's how I like to teach. Um, But now like it's hundred percent true. It's like, you know, most of my calls, I've got a hat backwards and a cutoff t-shirt just came in from a workout. And now I get to, to coach and teach. And I'm like, that is much more me than you know, a pair of pants, super tight, 
and a shirt tucked in. It's like, that's not my style. <laughs> yeah. Well, the nice thing with coaching too, is there's plenty of people to help and there's bun- like a bunch of different online coaches, you know, everybody has their own style, their own flair. And I think a lot of coaches coming up in this space, they feel like, oh, it's saturated. And it's like, no, it's not like there's literally millions of people that need help, but they need the right person for them. And like, I'm not everyone's coach. Like if you come to me and you want to be a powerlifter, sorry, no. If you come to me and you want to run the goofy marathon and you want me to do your endurance based style training, I'm, I'm not the girl for you. <laughs> or, or if you want me to do like soccer drills or something, I'm definitely not the person for you. So there's plenty of people out there that have all these specialties that have all this different types of experience. And so you have to find like the right fit for you. And I'm sure that like where you're coming from, like you have such a unique thing to bring to the space, right? Yeah. It's in thinking about it that way, if you just look at the demographics in general, like 80% of the entire U S population needs a coach (laughs) to teach them how to move, to teach them how to eat, to teach them how to be a fitter, healthier person. So like, I don't think this space could ever become saturated enough. Yeah. Because everybody needs that. And, you know, like you mentioned, it's a personality thing because if you really want to get the best version of yourself, you need to really jive and connect with that person. Mm-hmm. And yeah, their personality, their, their way they approach things, the way they look at life in general, you know, there'll be enough people, no matter how saturated you think the market is to yeah. make a, you know, a very good living and have fun at what you do and really make an impact on helping people. Because I think that's the most important part. I mean, that's why I love it so much is because you can see that direct impact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you definitely have to be passionate in this space, but you know, it's been a huge part of your life for like most of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you don't need like a crazy huge following. Sure. It could help, but you know, just kind of starting from the ground up, it's, it's worth the time you put in from my experience. Yeah, definitely. Nick, where can people find you and get more connected if they have any questions or if they want to reach out in general? Yeah. Um, uh, my Instagram handle is dr.nicktruby, dr.nicktruby. And then uh, trubyhealth.com is my website. Perfect. For anyone listening, you can go ahead and check out the description down below for more information. Here on Beyond the Bikini, we talk a lot about training and nutrition. Trust me, it can be challenging to hit your fitness goals on your own. There is so much out there when it comes to working out, hitting your nutrition, and finding the plan that's right for you and your goals. Now, one thing that can make that a lot easier is hiring a coach and getting support towards your goals. I'm happy to say that I do offer online health and fitness coaching. I have plans that vary from support with training and nutrition and just your nutrition, and I even offer challenges throughout the year. If that sounds like something you're interested in, make sure you check out that description box down below. You can also find more details on my coaching services at NicoleFerrierFitness.com or even on Instagram at Nicole Ferry Fitness. All right, now back to the episode.